0: Hello, my name is uh, Nathaniel Johnson, or Nate, as many people know me. And we're here for the P's and G's Global Focus uh, podcast. This is our very first pilot episode. I'm here with Malcolm and Carrie Lyon. Good to meet Hello. you. Hello. And we'll be having a long-form conversation about, um, uh, for lack of a better term, missions, a loaded term these days. Um, actually, you know, because this is a loaded term, it's our pilot podcast, what do you guys think about the term
1: missions and what does that mean? I mean, I think it's, to me, it's uh, most importantly, it's taking the gospel to the whole world, to the nations, um, which is a definitely unfinished task. Um, so to, to me, that's what it's all about.
2: I think all of us have a mission mm. because I think God uh, calls us. He is a God that has a mission. He's a God that has a plan. He's doing something. He's not just like up there twiddling his thumbs and waiting for it all to roll out or something. He is moving things to completion. And all of us as part of his church are part of that mission. He invites us on a journey with him to complete things. And then I suppose for each person, we're finding what is our connection with that? What is our part of that? Whether is it like reaching out to... um, people who are struggling in different schools? Is it um, doing stuff with poor people? Is it, you know, what is it? So we're each, like, finding our place. And then what we term mission or missionaries in the church are people who are specifically called to go cross-culturally as part of that, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that is the part that we are involved in. We're doing that... Sharing God, taking part in that mission, but doing it cross culturally, specifically to people who are unreached, who don't have the opportunity to find out about God otherwise.
0: Okay, yeah, because you keep, you use this word unreached, and maybe not everybody listening would know what that term means. But you say it's somebody who, um, within their own context, would not have access to the gospel, the Christian message of Jesus. Yeah, so
2: typically we are working in countries where less than 1% of the population would uh, call themselves Christian. Okay. So less than one in a hundred people. So imagine how many people do you actually meet, like in a week, Mm -hmm. probably not that many. Mm -hmm. I mean, you bump into people on the bus, you work with people, you chat to your neighbors. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people everyone speaks to in a week. But if only one in every hundred people was a Christian, your chances of getting any kind of conversation about Christianity or finding out about it is pretty small.
0: No, it is pretty small. So, well, here's maybe two two kind of, kind of follow-up uh, with that. Um, what, what, where have you guys landed? But how did you get there? Because uh, that would be an interesting question. So currently, again, you work in media, you do some things. So in whatever order you want to answer that, how did you end up becoming cross-culturally focused um, as your part of the, the, the church's plan? And, um, and then what
1: specifically do you do? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, thinking back, um, a long time ago, I went to university. It was 1979. Um, <laughs> and Not that long ago. And, and when I went... So, <laughs> so old! So when I went to university, I went... Never really having thought about, you know, overseas mission or cross cultural mission or anything like that. I was just you know, I was actually thinking about rocket science was what I really wanted to do with my life. <laughs> the much the so, much talked about rocket science is too that's who, right. So, who can do anything? And God, God had a message for me. It's not rocket science. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so and and so during four years at university, um, I did change, uh, you know, or God changed me, or God changed my perspective or my my passion or whatever. But I came out the other end, you know, with a clear sense that God was calling me to some kind of cross-cultural mission somewhere else in the world.
2: And that happened because you joined a mission prayer group.
1: Initially the first thing was joining a mission prayer group, which I kind of did under Sort of duress. <laughs> It wasn't exactly juries. <laughs> it was kind of a it was kind of a three line whip from the you know, the, the Christian Union kind of leadership that year. It's like everyone should be in a missionary prayer group. So I just kind of like went on oh, because I was very kind of, you know, young and kind of um, obedient. Obedient, that's the word, yeah. <laughs> Not a popular I've holiday, changed. but an important <laughs> word. Faith in action, obedience. Yeah. So, so I did, and but that that was the first thing that changed me because I got I went along to this group, which was an Africa prayer group. We prayed for missionaries all over Africa. Some of them were in places which were quite Christian, but I think most of them were actually in places in Africa where there really wasn't much of a church, including in North Africa, um, which is actually where we ended up. so um yeah. But I, I got, I just got so excited about it, actually, I, and I guess that was just God at work, really. Yeah.
0: And, and was part of that a realization that there were people who um, didn't have access to, an, to to the knowledge of Christ, to to know the gospel that that God loved them, had sent His Son to die for them.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, was that was that part of it as well, or had you already become aware of that previously? I mean, where where does that think, play a part?
1: Well, I mean, for me. Actually, I went. So after a couple of years of like being in this prayer group, um, I actually went to um, to Kenya for for a six week kind of placement sort of thing. And the thing that that struck me about Kenya was that it really seemed very Christian, more Christian than than the UK actually. Um, And so, but there was full of missionaries. (laughs) So, so there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect here. It was like all these people have come, are coming here, you know, as missionaries, but the people are already—it's already a Christian country, and I, I suppose God used that to kind of point me in the in the direction of countries that were not like that, where there was virtually no church and very few missionaries. So. Um, if
0: you can, where, where did you end up when you first... Uh, well, what was your... Actually, so you had this heart, you had this mission, you had, I mean, this desire to do this, you'd been in this prayer group. Then how did you connect the dots and end up in a career in missions?
2: Well, yeah. we, we spent some time um, actually in Edinburgh. So we'd both um, been at St. Andrew's University, and then we moved to Edinburgh where I was doing uh, my doctorate in psychology. And uh, we continued this interest in mission while we were here. And then, as part uh, just of actually we led the global what was then the global focus group uh, as part of uh, what we were doing here. And we weres uh, con- and, G's. Uh, P's yeah, and yeah. Gs, yeah, And we were connected with some different missions, and they someone invited us actually to come on an exploratory weekend. And uh, when we were there, we were thought, yeah, for sure, we should sign up to do this. I think I've just realized in the last like week or something that one of, the, one of the things I think that guides me in doing things, like in finding what I should do or how I should follow God is like um, realizing something needs to happen. So like, my goodness, um, these people need to be told and no one is telling them. Yes. And then it comes to, oh, well, maybe I should do it. And that's sort our of principle of realising something, seeing a gap, something's not being done, and then thinking, oh well, maybe I should step up and do that. Because I think the realisation is also part of the calling. To
0: go for it. I mean, one of the reasons actually Val and I are living overseas right now, which, whatever that means, is because we like the idea of living outside of the States. We just think that's interesting to us. Mm. And that's one of the reasons we're here. It, it sounds so... It's just a very practical thing. It's not. Um, we could have been happy in a number of different places, so um, so you end up. Um, you know, you come down here. You're studying psychology. You're involved in uh, global focus. You go. You know, you go along to. Uh, you said like a sort of exploratory weekend. Was that? Yeah, but bi- yeah. who, who was running that weekend?
2: Um, Our Ministries. Okay, so, you yeah. thought, oh, we could do this. Yeah.
0: And then, um, and so you decide to. Raise support and then go for it. Obviously, peace and Jesus gets behind you, yeah. and you end up. Can you are you allowed to say where you guys ended up uh, in the first in your first sort of missions gig, if you want to use those sorts of terms? Okay, so
2: the, the very first thing that we had to do was to actually learn French.
1: Well, now, I, yeah, the very first thing was to decide whether we wanted to go to North Africa or to the Middle East because actually, Arab World Ministries had just recently expanded into the Middle East so uh, if you went to North Africa you had to learn French if you went to the Middle East you didn't you just had to go straight into Arabic uh, yeah so actually they did a they did a language aptitude test for both of us and we both came out quite quite high which was uh, surprising because neither of us were interested in languages or language learning really never had been. But they said, oh, you've got high language aptitude, so you should go to North Africa. So, okay. But, I mean, that comes back to this thing about what are your skills and gifts. And so they were helping us to understand what what we were bringing. Yeah,
0: and so, again, it wasn't just you guys had an openness to reaching the unreached. Yeah. And going uh, with Arab World Ministries... But then in the end, in a sense, your calling was partly determined by the group you worked with and, yeah. this, and other people speaking into you, sort of that Paul and Timothy thing, yeah. where Paul says, hey, I think, why don't you come with me? I think, you know, God has a plan and purpose. I mean, sometimes we have to have people call things out of us or give us direction.
2: Yeah. So when Malcolm said, you know, we didn't have language aptitude, I mean, I, when I was doing um, O grade French. I was in the lowest set where they just played French music <laughs> to kind of get you into the ambiance, or whatever. <laughs> so, like going to learn uh, French and Arabic, um, it seemed like impossible. Actually, I mean, quite literally. Like I'd never been. I'd been so bad at languages. It seemed actually impossible. But in fact we were only 9 months in France and we were fluent in French and okay. then we went uh, to North Africa we were based in Tunisia mm-hmm. and we started learning Arabic which is a much more difficult language and it has no overlap with English so French probably. French mm-hmm. has overlap you know so but then Arabic has no overlap and it is actually quite difficult to learn mm-hmm. so we were we spent 10 years uh, in Tunisia, we, we worked as what are called tent makers, which means you have a job as well as uh, being there mm-hmm. for uh, purposes of outreach. Job, and
1: so that for us was not making tents. It was just to <laughs> clarify, it was uh, teaching in the university.
0: Yeah. And, and then you were there, and what kinds of things does a missionary do in the, in the Arab world? Uh, again, if you, I mean, like, you were teaching at the university, I imagine that the government did not look kindly on church planting. If you, you know what I mean, yeah. as in if anything sort of official. Maybe they, but I don't know what the government of Tunisia was like at that time. Sometimes these governments do look the other way. They don't have; they're not that bothered. But you know, what kind of things no. were you doing in terms of mission? I mean, it's
2: mostly friendship evangelism. So okay. it's talking to your neighbors. Um, it's uh, chatting with students. Uh, one of the great things about working in the university was really getting to know the culture in depth. And this is important, actually, for later, what happened later. Because uh, we were both working in the in English, and I was also working in the psychology department. Um, but one of the things you do in the English department is you do oral exams. And that means getting students to chat about things, basically. And so we went through the whole of the first and second year, English students, twice a year, getting them to chat about things. So you can imagine how much like, feedback we got about how they felt about different things, things in their families. They told us all kinds of stories. So just it was an amazing way of understanding the culture. Uh, we did run some, we tried to have some uh, things happening in our house, like informal Meetings That was actually to include me a bit more because at that point we had two uh, children. So I wasn't working at that point in the university. Um, so it was to try and get some students around the house. But the police did not like that. <laughs>
1: So that was Malcolm, when, that was when I was hauled into the police station. <laughs> yeah, really,
2: to ask yeah. what he was doing with and all these students. Yeah.
0: Now, would these have just these were even maybe very Christian gatherings? You're just inviting people over for dinner, Chat. conversation. Oh, yeah. it it just was coffee and chatting. But, but as a Westerner
1: inviting
2: students yeah. into your home, yeah.
1: they thought this might be subversive in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I just played the kind of innocent, kind of stupid foreigner. oh, I didn't know. Sorry. You know. <laughs> But, I mean, the upshot was they said you can't really do this in your house. If you want to do something like this, it has to be in the university. So. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So they, yeah. again... They so
2: they can watch what you're doing. So.
1: Yeah, and and maybe, you know, be in a more kind of, yeah... Um, public setting or more transparent yeah yeah, absolutely because yeah I mean at that time Tunisia was very much a police state there was secret police everywhere but not in our house of course (laughs) unless they could get a a student or something an informer but they obviously didn't so so they were upset about something happening behind closed doors that they couldn't see so when, we'll go
2: so when we first went to Tunisia, I remember um, some other um, missionaries who on our in our organisation who uh, welcomed us and greeted us. And one of the things that they said was, "Okay, well, uh, you don't expect anything to happen while you're here. You just have to be faithful." And I was like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> why have I come here?" Um, but the reason that they said that is that nothing had happened for like, years, or like, hundreds of years, there were maybe about 20 Tunisian Christians in the whole country, and we weren't allowed to meet them, because then, you know, they'd be overwhelmed with foreigners or whatever.
1: Yeah, there was literally more missionaries than, than local Christians.
2: Yeah. at that time, Yeah. So, um, we were there for 10 years, and towards the end of that time, we really felt, amongst a group of us, that God was saying he was going to do something, And we started a a thing to get alongside what God was doing, actually, um, which some of people remember, they were talking about it the other day, which was called Awake Tunisia 99. And it was basically a prayer movement, and we had people come into the country and pray. And one of the most significant things that we also did was have open meetings to talk about God in people's houses where we weren't vetting everyone who came. And that was like a huge, you know, security risk, I guess. But um, at that point, God just really started to do things. And we were finding all kinds of people uh, like sitting under a tree, reading a Bible, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, loads of people started becoming Christians and they were being baptized and so on. So that was like so exciting. And that was kind of the birth of the the church today that is in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And before that, like if you were in a taxi and you said, um, yeah, yeah. A Tunisian Christian, the taxi driver would say, no, no, there are no Tunisian Christians. That doesn't exist. But they would not say that today. Everyone knows in Tunis that there are Tunisian Christians and they're quite present. So that's so exciting.
0: Uh, fascinating. So, but there was a move of God then. Yes. As people, yeah. c- prayer, and you guys just sort of went for it, yeah. and and it's largely borne fruit now. Yeah. What, what now? There was a bit of a uh, Arab Spring in Tunisia, you know, a while back, right? Or what? Yeah. There, there was some yeah. movement. How has that affected you know things in Tunisia? Just out of curiosity, what's what's kind of happened with the church there? Yeah. Well,
2: that's a big jump of about like ten years or something. Yeah. But maybe to say first, like mm-hmm. once that happened and all these things were getting exciting and so on, we just actually felt God's. Speak to us about leaving. So that was disappointing, wasn't it? <laughs> We're just like, okay, it's all happening now, and then and, oh, and
0: investing ten years, yeah, you know, we, of hard graft, right,
1: and feel like you're finally breaking through.
2: Yeah, and then we just felt God sort of was saying it's time to move on, and not very clear about where to either.
1: Actually, the interesting thing was. And what, what kind of maybe confirmed it a bit to us was that we weren't the only ones. There were several people who'd been there maybe a similar length of time to us. And they were all leaving or planning to leave for different reasons, actually. And we s- sensed that this was some kind of a, a clear out, maybe, uh, of, the, of the old guard or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah. and an opportunity for actually Tunisian leadership uh, to emerge more you know, quickly and so on. But,
2: yeah and so we um we moved from there actually to France, where handy to have learned French, where we um, we were based in the, the media um, office in France, and Malcolm started working in in media um, yeah so that was the next step for us and then uh, you talked about the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. um, so that was uh, uh, not long after we left Tunisia, uh, some friends of ours uh, who were missionaries there started a, a significant prayer movement, and that went for seven years, uh, praying for Tunisia, and then it finished. And then on the it finished in the December, and then in the January, the man in Sidi uh, Bouzid set himself on fire, which started yes, the I'm Arab gonna... Spring. And maybe what you didn't know is that when we were there during Awake Tunisia 99, we did actually have a prophetic word about the Arab Spring. Well, it seems to me. And the word was that there would be something that would start in Tunisia, that it would go then to Egypt, and from there it would spread throughout the whole of the Arab world. And it would be terrible, and it would be like a tsunami that would completely change things. And so when that prayer initiative uh, stopped and then that was announced on the radio and the TV that this had happened, um, several of us kind of really felt right away, oh my goodness, we remembered that prophetic word and felt, oh my goodness, this is actually it. And that was kind of interesting for me because I never really kind of got the point of prophecy in a way. And especially, you know, it says in the Bible you will know something is true if it happens. And then if it doesn't happen, you'll know it wasn't true. I was thinking, well, what is the <laughs> point of that? That doesn't make any sense to me. But my goodness, it was so um, encouraging and reassuring to know that this horrific uh, you know, upheaval in the, in the whole of the Arab world was part of God's plan. And that, and he, that, was that he, he was aware was, of it. He was yeah. doing something yeah. through that. Mm. And and that really also I think taught me a bit about prophecy as well, and how important and relevant that it that it is.
0: You know, where are we now with what what God is doing in the Arab world? And and, I'd, and and again, I'd love to hear the again specifically. where are you
1: know I'm sitting with you, and how has that affected your ministry, and where you guys are at? Yeah, well, I think I mean obviously in um, you know back in twenty ten. Uh, 20, was it 2011? Or anyway, when the Arab Spring really took off, everyone was quite excited. You know, if you remember, you know, it was like, oh, the de- democracy is coming to the Arab world, finally. You know, the people are going to be free. They're going to be, you know, everyone's going to be happy. And, uh, and and then gradually, it just kind of went off the rails, and you had, you know, Syria, Libya. ISIS. Yemen, ISIS, you know, and all these things kind of came out of what was happening. And then the, the, rev- you know, the revolution in Egypt and the, then the takeover by the army and, you know, it just all seemed to be going wrong. Now, <laughs> interestingly, in Tunisia it was the one place that it seemed to almost work. Um, they still have a democratic system of government. Um, it is not really a police state anymore as it was pre the revolution. Um, but people are not happy at the same time. <laughs> they are not, you know, seeing the fruit of the revolution that they expected or wanted. Uh, they're not seeing prosperity. They're not seeing, um, you know, the same sort of lifestyle that people have in Europe, you know, which they maybe thought, all we need is democracy and it'll all come right, you know, which of course has not happened. But it's it's the kind of the one... More or less success story of the Arab Spring, perhaps you might say. Everywhere else, it's kind of like crumbled. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, No. So, so do you think it's better? The Middle East and uh, North Africa are better off post World uh, Arab Spring, or is it just sort of, you know, there was sort of this convulsion and basically it's kind of an earthquake, but in the end, it kind of reverted to the mean.
1: What's yours? What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean. well let's go back to what you know what is god doing and why would he allow okay. all this you know and i think it's just been such a huge shake up of the whole arab world in fact of the whole muslim world i think you know to see what's happening in the middle east uh, and um i think that you know Okay if you take the, the analogy of, of like Islam being something that people are clinging to very, very tightly, and that 's been the true for 1400 years. Islam has been this thing that, that held people or they were holding on to and could not let go of or would not let go of and you know it 's almost like the, the whole Arab Spring and aftermath has been such a shake up that people are starting to let go. I would put it like that. Mm. And that's what we're seeing in our media ministry. We're seeing people kind of being so shaken up that they are letting go of Islam, finally. Mm-hmm. And I would say if, if there's anything, if, if you could sum up what God is doing or what he has been doing through this whole thing in the mm-hmm. Arab world over the last 10 years, that's how I would explain it. It's such a shake up that people are starting to let go of Islam.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's an openness to something
0: else. Yeah.
2: And it's, you know, it's interesting um, when you pray, you know, sometimes I think we just pray things like, oh, God, you know, open up this, uh, you know, this country and let people get to know you. But we're not really necessarily prepared for what it might take for that prayer to, you know, be answered. And, uh, yeah, so we, I think we saw that with the Arab Spring. It took a lot to break Islam. Um, and it, you know, had a huge consequence for people. But it's interesting also that one of the countries that uh, does quite a lot of state persecution is Algeria. And one of the laws that they brought in uh, during this time was it was against the law to shake the faith of a Muslim. So anything that you did that might shake the faith of a Muslim, you could be prosecuted for. But you see behind that the fear, the fear of feeling. I mean, why would something be so unstable that you have to make a law saying if anyone shakes this, you know, you can go to prison or whatever. But you can see the fear uh, that Islam is cracking And whereas there were so many, many hundreds of years where, I mean, hardly any Muslims came to Christ, now is something that happens daily.
0: So now, where where have you guys landed? You were in France. Uh, Then, you know, maybe you want to pick up the story there and kind of where have you guys landed and, and what are you guys doing even today, you know, these days?
1: Yeah, okay, well, well, when we moved to France, um, and we moved into media, and we didn't really know anything about media. In fact, I, the, first thing, the first job I had was some kind of research thing. It was really uninteresting, and plus also looking after the local computer network, which was also extremely uninteresting. But then, after just one or two years, I think, then a whole, uh, several of us who were in media realized the potential of the internet uh, because we'd done been doing all stuff with radio and uh, satellite tv and um, but the internet was now really taking off Um,
2: and actually it was quite contentious so there was like quite a lot of debate in the team about should we do this internet thing or do we need to keep going with the radio and you know because not everyone can get on the internet, you know, but everyone can hear the radio and we don't know if they're listening or not, but there was all this kind of shake-up. And then there was this experience experience that I had again of saying, oh my goodness, it's absolutely obvious that we need to go in this direction. Why is someone not, like, (laughs) leading forward with this? And then thinking oh my goodness, I think I need to do this. And so actually I um, was interviewed for the for the role of leading that ministry forward into an internet evangelism ministry. And then that started our current uh, ministry today.
0: I mean, it seems so obvious right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, It seems so obvious, you yeah. know. That's interesting that there was actually an internal Absolutely. contention about whether it
2: should be done hindsight and is a great thing I remember in, <laughs> in our team as well with, it, with the team that I was leading then having a huge debate about whether we should go on Facebook and again people were like no it's a security quest, uh, issue for people we shouldn't go on there and again I felt so strongly that we should go on Facebook which is now like a core part of our ministry and everyone would say of course we should be there or whatever But it's easy to see these things in hindsight and quite difficult at the time to discern the right way forward. So that is always a key prayer point, actually, of discerning how to use uh, the current platforms and what way to lead uh, a ministry forward because, yeah, we don't have the benefit of hindsight at the time.
0: So how do you use Facebook, out of curiosity, and how do you manage the security concerns?
2: Well, um one of the ways that we use facebook we do have it like a social media ministry like we you know we make little posts about different things that are happening in the country we make posts about uh, bible verses and so on but primarily we use facebook as an advertising platform so that is that we make uh, different campaigns to reach different people so we're particularly looking for people who are seeking to know more about Jesus and so we will make a campaign about say something like forgiveness saying that like is a lack of forgiveness and you know something that you're struggling with in your life or do you need forgiveness or something and do you want to know what Jesus taught about this and then inviting people to read the bible to find out more or study the bible with one of our teams, something like this And Facebook is an amazing advertising platform for doing those kind of little video ads. So we use that extensively. It is a security issue, but it's an issue that the individual is deciding for themselves when they go on Facebook and they look at things. And I mean, what I said to our team at the time when we were discussing it is, do we have the right to make those kinds of decisions for other people about what is safe for them or not.
0: And what risks they're willing to take. To find information.
2: And and information that has eternal significance uh, for them and can save them, save their lives, literally. So are we making those decisions for people or are people making those decisions for themselves?
0: Yeah, you're just providing an opportunity for them to engage. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so now, now, where have you guys where are things now I mean there's facebook you're engaging there i um, as I was reading the updates and kind of catching up with the stuff that you guys have sent sent to, to us so I heard there was an app you're working on um I've heard that you're working on some videos with uh, believe you know uh, Muslim believers, different things like this that you kind of different resources you're working on these days so, so you know um you've moved from France to well, wherever you are, south of, England, yeah. <laughs> south of England, there we go. And um, and what are the projects you're working on now? You've got fa- these Facebook things still going on. What kinds of things are you working on these days?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that I've just been involved in is setting up a, a whole new website, uh, which is for... Um, it's really to try and reach particularly religious Muslims, like even imams religious teachers, sheikhs, uh, because we have found that sometimes these people are are actually very open. These are people who know more about Islam than anyone else. Mm. And actually, for some people, the journey into finding out more of Islam is actually one of finding out that they don't really believe it, or Mm. they find too many um, problems or um, yeah controversies or you know contradictions um yeah, and so they they then turn out to be actually quite open to other ideas and they start even looking you know well if Islam is not true, what is so we but but the conversation with them is a bit different, and we felt that we wanted to be able to talk more about Islam, perhaps, for example, which we don't do on our our normal kind of uh, Arabic ministry website, we just talk about Christianity, more or less, um, we stay away from like debate about Islam, but here we thought we need to have the oppor- you know, we need to have the possibility of, of engaging with these people, talking about Islam as well perhaps
0: mm-hmm.
1: so uh, that, that made a whole new website that was completely separate. Um, well, well, out of curiosity, what are maybe one or two or three of the kind of
0: issues that you think like what are some of the tensions within Islam? Or questions that often appear out of curiosity. You deal, you know, you're you're, you're engaging with people. Um, what are some points that of of resonance or
1: difficulty that often lead people to look? I'm mean, I'm actually I'm actually really curious about that. I think uh, I mean one thing is this whole idea of um, I think there's there's problems in the Quran definitely, and uh, people are are researching and finding problems. Just within the text of the Quran, within the the history of Muhammad and the the construction of the Quran, things like this, people are starting to look at it more critically, and that is kind of that information is seeping out, Mm -hmm. and people are starting to get a bit you know a bit nervous about the whole infrastructure of Islam is is starting to show cracks. So, if I understand this correctly,
0: that uh, the Quran is. Um, like Christians have an idea that the Bible is both a human and divine book, and that there's some sort of mystery there, whereas my understanding with the Quran is that there's like a... it's sort of the earthly Quran that we... the, the, the Quran that we have in our hands, the Arabic Quran, is a copy, or a sort of reflection, of a book in heaven. Yeah. And it's a, it was recited. So, with Christian, you know, because we believe this is a human document, we can do textual criticism, we can kind of look for different manuscripts, we believe there are different authors, whereas... My understanding is that textual criticism is a big no-no Absolutely,
1: yeah.
0: in, with the Quran because there's not supposed to be any sort of textual history or variant readings yeah. or whatever. This is a, it's a divine book with...
2: yeah, you yeah. And more than that, like with, within Islam there is a whole thing about you are not supposed to ask any kind of questions. So uh, quite a lot of people who come to us, they've said, I had questions and I went to the imam or the sheikh and basically sometimes they like they just beat them. Like they slap them or whatever for asking a question and they tell them to stop doing that. I mean, they're just not actually allowed to question things. So they're coming sometimes with a genuine question about why does it say this or whatever. And uh, they're, yeah, that's completely rejected within Islam.
1: So I think that's, yeah, that combined with this, um, I mean, gl- globalisation and the... You know,
2: access to information access
1: to information yeah and you know people are being encouraged to ask questions you know the whole education system gradually changing as well um, is not just not compatible with islam because islam says you can't ask questions but people are from every other direction they're being encouraged no question things ask check things out you know but not islam you're not allowed to touch that you know and they're like why
2: but many, many people are completely disillusioned with Islam and uh, what they see as the fundamental teaching of Islam. And they're like, no, I, I don't agree with this, basically. And so when people connect with us, most people have actually already rejected Islam. So they're already like, no, I'm looking for another answer. I want to find out about the true God. Is this the true God? And that's more where they're kind of coming from. Mm -hmm. So many people say things like, I want to know how to be a Christian. What prayers do I need to pray? What things do I need to say? So they've got this Islamic mindset, but they've kind of rejected Islam and now they want to find out about something else. So there's a whole journey into discovering What it is to, to be a Christian, what it is to have God live in you, which is different from following a religion.
0: Hmm. Yes, very interesting. So uh, sounds, now this, is, this stuff is just really fascinating. It's really exciting to hear the kinds of things that are happening um, in, the, in the Islamic world, you know, across the Middle East, North Africa. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to explore or tell us a little bit more about the tools you guys are using these days.
2: Yeah, so um, we make we make tools according to the needs that we see and um, like the holes that there are or whatever. So um, Malcolm has certainly worked on developing quite a lot of tools, both the content and of course the technology to deliver them. Uh, we have a, a web app that is for uh, brand new believers because when you're a new believer uh, from a, coming from a non-Christian and a Muslim background. You have a lot of uh, life kind of questions. You don't really know what prayer is in Christianity. You don't really know how to pray. We do a lot about how do I know I'm a Christian? You know, uh, you have to remember these people are often isolated and they're often in quite a hostile environment uh, with other people around them all believing something different and maybe attacking them for any, you know, differences they have. So we've got those kind of things. We have other... Like discipleship tools that help people take through little courses to learn, like the overview, the big picture uh, things of the Bible. This is all yeah. you know, based around our Arabic uh, website. They can access them there, or we can send them direct links, of course. We do things like frequently asked questions, we have those on little apps as well um, about lifestyle. A number of years ago, I uh, wrote a number of self help modules for, especially for women facing mental illness issues um, in uh, the Arab world, where there's often terrible advice. So we have those little tools um, that we're developing. Mm-hmm. And then we continue to kind of expand the platforms that we interact with people on, because our, um, our kind of ethos is to go where people are and where they want to communicate. Uh, so we're, of course, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, all this kind of thing.
0: And as I was reading, and as you've mentioned to me in the conversation, you're exploring the metaverse. Th- th- okay, so we got to have a couple minutes on this. So, okay, what's what's going on? I don't even know if I know what the metaverse is. But can you? get yeah, But t- tell us, tell, tell us about this. this.
2: Well, the metaverse, um, of course, is a bit like a social media platform, only it's in 3D, and uh, typically you would enter it through a 3D headset, like an Oculus, for example, headset.
0: But people are using for gaming. Yeah. Yes,
2: exactly. Now, gaming is a big part of the metaverse. I heard actually just uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the mm-hmm. French uh, pres- uh, president, he has just uh, opened up a whole thing in inside, was it Minecraft? A whole election area within Minecraft, a little village you can go and visit, a French village with the big posters and so on. So people are entering into those spaces that were normally for gamers to do all kinds of other things. We're using one of the, so it's a bit like there's different platforms on social media. So there's like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. Well, in the metaverse, in this 3D space, there's different platforms as well. So we're using one platform called Altspace VR. And people uh, can represent themselves not with a social media profile in there, but with a little avatar that can then like move around. And then if you meet another avatar, you can talk to them, like with your real voice talk, just like we're talking now, or else you can text them like you would on a phone. So there's places where people can meet, but also we can hold events there. So it's like going to a cinema or going to a theatre or going to a workshop. You can present material and you can have discussions and you can interact. You can shake hands. You can uh, go close to one person to talk to them. You can go far away. You can uh, can use emoticons, uh, like little hello, happy balloons sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You can show emotions a little bit like that. So it's um, a new area to explore. But of course, we know that it's going to be very relevant because... Uh, people like Meta, formerly Facebook, are investing billions in it. Many, many people are developing loads of things there right now. But part of our, um, the groups that we work with in the Arab world are in the Gulf. And in the UAE, in Dubai, places like this, people are using VR in their classrooms and school. They're massively invested in that technology and these are some of the hardest to reach people in the world. So even if you go and live in Dubai, the likelihood of you being able to talk to an Arab from Dubai is extremely small. There's not that many of them and they stay like in their family sort of circles. But if you go into the metaverse, you can go and speak to anyone. There's not, those barriers are not there. And, and so sense... there's huge opportunities.
0: They're hungry, in a sense, to connect, but there are sort of social structures, religious structures, but, you know, maybe social, you know, community structures, family structures that might keep them from interacting. Because I imagine that even in the metaverse, a man and a woman might be able to have a conversation that that might be very problematic, actually, in a sort of uh, social setting in, like, the, yeah. you know one of the emirates yeah. or something yeah. and yeah. in
2: the metaverse you can be whoever you want if you like mm-hmm. you don't need to represent yourself the way you actually are i mean there's huge questions to ask about yeah it. ethical and all yeah. kinds, all no, kinds no, of no. questions fascinating I mean, it is yeah. definitely but we're looking at it as how can we use this platform in a positive and helpful way just now mm-hmm. so that's new so maybe next year we'll have more updates on that and uh mm-hmm.
0: No, that would be fascinating. I mean, it, it has some implications for what it means, especially for an isolated believer or, mm. you know, to attend a church. Yeah. You know, uh, suddenly you might be able to attend some yeah. form of church. I mean, you get a, a sort of approximation of this with something like Zoom, yeah. which it's not, it's not ideal. Mm. You know, just like going from radio to the Internet, yes. suddenly you, not only were you beaming out, but they could yeah. beam back in. yeah. You know, they can. It, it's it's a it's a platform yeah, that yeah. runs both ways. Yeah, it's not a one way platform. Oh, this is really um, fascinating. I mean, obviously, at some level, as human beings, we want people to interact physically and in yeah. the real. You know what I mean? There's something in. You know, you don't want to move into some sort of strange gnostic cyber world. Of, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, as a tool for interaction, you know, why is it any more problematic than calling somebody on the phone? Mm-hmm.
2: I heard you know. a really good, um, uh, t- sort of useful way of judging things, the, like recently, and that was, um, instead of saying, is this good or is this bad? Should you do this or you should you do that? Um, and the question to ask is, instead of what, right? So, um, so you can use it like for diet or something, you know, is it, is it good to eat, you know, I don't know, crisps or cereal or something? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it, you know, you might say, no, that's not good. But instead of what? Like, what are you going to eat instead? Like, Mars bars or whatever? Maybe that's better. So some, you can use that principle to say, you know, is it good to use, uh, you know, the metaverse? Well, the question, instead of what? Like, what is the alternative? Is the alternative that the person is just sitting in their room, not speaking to anyone at all? In which case, yeah, maybe this is a good choice. Is the question, are they using it instead of meeting up with local Christians? Or well, is it, no, that's not a good choice. So adding that question in, instead of what, I think yeah. helps us to make those decisions.
0: Well, you know, it's, again, it's this idea that everything you know, everything is good if it's used, if it's used to, to its appropriate ends. Yeah. You know, and again... Like if, uh, you know, if you, if you had, again, if you only wrote letters to somebody and they lived across the street, like, well, it's yeah. strange. Yeah. Why, why aren't you going across the street to meet them? Yeah. You know? On the other hand, if you live very far away, a letter can be really meaningful. Yeah. You know? So, uh, in fact, very meaningful. Yeah. So, oh, this is really exciting. I love the fact that as I've been listening to you that, um, you know, and I guess I think I've found this uh, in my experience. Oftentimes, missionaries, if we're going to use those terms, or missions partners or whatever, cross-cultural workers, I mean, are among the most innovative people I always meet. They're always looking for new technologies, trying new things, trying to innovate, trying to think creatively about how to engage people. And again, it's just interesting to hear that you guys are, you know, at the cutting edge of this, uh, you know, at least what appears to us to be at the cutting edge of this sort of technology. It's very interesting. But um, how can we pray for you guys? You guys are, you know, based in the south of England. Um, yeah, how are you guys doing? You guys, have, you know, we've just finished two long years of COVID. I think in Scotland, of the eighteenth, all our restrictions will—you won't know, have to wear masks anywhere. So we're kind of coming to the end of all of this. Um,
1: how are you guys doing? How can we well, for and, you? And well, first of all, how are we doing? I think we're doing quite well. I mean, we we moved to working from home right away in in lockdown two years ago, um, and that's actually been really good. Actually, I think in some ways it's better because the thing is. We work in a team that is scattered all over the world. And so it was kind of a bit of an illusion going into an office every day to kind of think, well, this is, these are the people we work with. Because actually the other people in the office were mostly not people we were working very closely with. The people we're working closely with are in the Middle East, for example. Or even in, we, we're working with, uh, there's a Syrian guy who's in Brazil um, who's on our team. Uh, so we're kind of scattered around, um, and it's actually been kind of liberating a bit to, to just all be kind of remote working, all together, mm. uh, rather than, you know, thinking, oh, well, we're in an office and other people are kind of at home, you know, but well, we're all at home, actually, or well, we all have been, um, and that's um, that's worked quite well to just um, make us aware of the fact that we're, we're scattered. We need to work on that. And that's a prayer request as well. That, um, yeah, it's a, it requires effort to kind of keep the communication working well, keep the collaboration working well, keep the relationships good. Um, yeah, team stuff. Yeah.
2: I think uh, another thing that I've been doing over the last uh, two years is... Focusing on mentoring uh, some people um, into their roles. So especially um, people in our team in Cairo. So I have uh, working with me someone who's now heading up our social media team. So she has three person three people below her. Um, and just sort of helping her grow into leadership, into uh thinking things through strategically seeing her blossom in in those areas that's been quite important we now um have an almost totally arab team there's only malcolm myself and one other person who is not arab on the team so that's been so exciting to see that develop
0: are they based uh are they based
2: they're in the middle east okay yeah um and then as malcolm said there's like a someone in Brazil or whatever scattered a bit but they're mostly all inside the Arab world Uh, but that's been really uh, good to be able to see them grow into this ministry and understand it and take ownership of it as well Um, and then just continually praying for discernment and creativity and uh, getting the right skills on board because these are growing areas you know uh, they're new for everyone and we need people who have some of these technical skills to be able to, you know, get on board, to be able to help us keep moving forward.
0: And, and I, I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, almost every day you're seeing people engaging or coming to Christ. I mean, is yes. this, what, what? can you speak about those kinds of numbers or experiences? I'm just kind of curious.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the numbers are about that, like about 300 or so people coming to Christ every day. Every, um, what? Every, every year, year so every one year. a day. <laughs> Maybe um, next
1: time, you know, three years a day, that would be
2: good, yeah. <laughs> We're actively engaged, that is, talking one-on-one mm-hmm. with about, um, in a year, about 11,500 people. Wow. So there's quite a lot of activity through the different platforms. Yep. Of course, not every conversation goes on for a long time. Yep. Um, but yeah there's there's lots happening and then people come back sometimes after even a year and reconnect again so yeah. we're still in that space we're still maintaining a presence there people can find us we work hard on being able to be found by people who are searching um but yeah but we've got to like help mentor these people who do come to faith into growing as disciples as mm-hmm. well
0: well this has been great to have a conversation this is our pilot episode of our P's and G's global focus uh, conversations, uh, first ever podcast but I thank you for being with us it's been uh, fun it's been really great talking to you and uh, thank you so much
1: Thank thank you